welcome to Sharing is Caring, the fifth in our series of Urban Transport Next Conversations with a live online audience uh, on topics that will help shape the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or listening later to the podcast or on YouTube, thank you so much for joining us. So I'm Becky Fuller, I'm Assistant Director at Urban Transport Group and we're the hosts of this ongoing series of conversations. And if you don't know us, um, we're the UK's network of city region transport authorities serving over 20 million people. And our job is to make sure transport can play its full part in making our city regions greener, fairer, happier, healthier and more prosperous. And I'm really pleased that so many people have signed up to take part in today's event because we've got a really great lineup of speakers for you. So our chair this afternoon is Gillian uh, Annabel. Uh, she's Professor of Transport and Energy at the University of Leeds. Gillian's research looks at reducing carbon and energy from transport and in particular the future of the car, including new mobility services, the psychology of car ownership and the concept of car usership. And on our panel, we have uh, Greg Marsden, also from the University of Leeds. Greg is Professor of Transport Governance and an expert in climate and energy policy in transport. Uh, his research looks at place-based approaches to decarbonising transport, and he's also the co-chair of the Commission on Travel Demand, of which more later. And we're also joined as part, as part of the panel by Richard Dilks, Chief Executive of Como UK, which is a charity focused on the public benefit of shared cars, bikes, e-scooters and rides. And you, the audience, can also be part of this conversation. You can submit questions via the Zoom questions box. Please keep them short and sharp and you can also upvote your favourites and Gillian will be picking these up in the final 15 to 20 minutes of the conversation and uh, you can also use the comments channel of the zoom call and of course you can tweet us at utg underscore uk and join the conversation using the hashtag utg next so I'll now hand over to our chair Gillian Annabel thank you thank you Becky and good afternoon everybody I'm, I'm really pleased to be involved in this conversation and not least to be the one asking the questions. Um, uh, it's a nice position to be in as far as I'm concerned and uh, particularly as we have Greg and Richard here, two uh, real experts on this topic and we should have a really lively discussion. I'm going to just uh, set some hairs running with a, with a few questions initially and as Becky said, if you can put your questions in the q and I'll keep an eye on them and, and bring them in a little bit, a bit later in the discussion once we've, we've got through um, a couple of my questions. Um, so I'm going to start by asking both Richard and Greg to just introduce themselves, just talk a little bit about uh, the, their background, how they come to be involved in, in this topic area before we get into the, into the substance, just by way of introducing themselves. I'm going to ask Richard to do that first, if he doesn't mind. Not at all. Thanks for having me. always get slightly worried when I'm described as an expert. Um, the, uh, the, the bad news is the wallpaper behind me, but the good news is it's getting done next month. So if you ever have me back, you won't have to suffer this twice. Apologies. Um, how did I get into all this? So, so I'm Chief Exec of Coma UK. We are this charity for the public benefit of shared transport, that's social, economic and environmental benefits. Um, and we're also a collective body in the shared transport space, so working very much with authorities and operators. Um, my background is with transport for quite a while, more public transport and infrastructure in previous roles, which is for a business group called London First. Uh, and there I saw the, I think, 
really the sort of end of the first wave and through the second wave of, of shared transport innovations uh, passing through London, got interested in that, interested in the sheer liveliness and dynamism of that sector, which frankly stood in pretty stark contrast to public transport, vital as public transport is. But, uh, you know, I think with rail, you can sort of pop in every few years and check if much has changed and have a little debate about how to do franchising or whether it's nationalisation and smart ticketing and you could go away again and come back in five years and have pretty much the same debate. Shared transport, that just literally isn't possible. The, the landscape moves, you know, really does move much faster than that, much more fundamentally, which brings a challenge, but, you know, I think it's also very exciting. Great. Thanks, Richard. Okay. And, and Greg. Greg and I are, are close colleagues at the Institute for Transport Studies, but I don't know how he would describe himself as, as being here right now talking about shared transport. Yeah, or indeed whether you're going to mark my answer as to how, you know, how well, well you think I actually answered the question. But um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, well, I guess I, I'm here today because I co-chaired the Commission on Travel Demand uh, Inquiry with you, uh, Gillian, uh, and Jonathan Bray was one of the commissioners on it on shared mobility, where where now and where, where next. Um and why did we pick that as one of our our kind of topic areas? So we'd looked at uh, at overall changes in travel demand, and then we went to shared mobility next. Um, and the reason is um, one that that you and I spend a lot of time um, shouting, haranguing, writing, researching about, which is that we've got to decarbonise, and in a hurry. Um, and I think one option that is open to us, if we really wanted to take it, uh, is to share because we use our, our vehicles today in a really very inefficient way, um, both in terms of the volume of assets that we have, but also how we use them when, when we have them. Um, it would require quite a lot of policy and social adaptation, um, but it's it's all doable and within reach. Um, so that to me feels like a great opportunity, but... Um, I think Ali uh, Clubben, who who set up LiftShare, came to the inquiry uh, and told us that he's built his business up in spite of, rather than because of a supportive policy environment. Um, you know, so why is it that that we find, um, you know, really getting behind shared mobility so difficult? Um, so yeah, that's why I'm I'm kind of here and why why I'm so interested in this because I feel it's really really important. Yeah, absolutely spot on as far as I'm concerned too. And and we will we'll get to this this idea of uh what a supportive policy environment might might look like uh in a little while. But I think probably the obvious place to start is is to think about um the fact or ask the question as to whether the pandemic has really interfered with the trajectory that, that we were on in this country for shared mobility. So I suppose my question is, you know, where were we pre, pre-COVID and what have the implications of, of COVID been? Gillian, would you like to come in on that? Yeah. Sorry, Greg. Um, so I think we have a paradox on our hands here. So where we were in terms of shared transport was both uh, pre-COVID was both uh, at generally all-time highs, which is obviously ha- happy news for the decarbonisation point. Also, for a, there's a whole set of uh, interlocking benefits that shared transport brings: um, reduced congestion, reduced uh, number of cars. So it goes to decarbonisation, but also to just quality of place to air quality, levels of activity people have in their lives, physical activity and so on. So we were at an all-time high, but we were still relatively marginal. 
And I think we're at this phase of evolution where uh, we are now at something that is mass scale. Um, so car club total membership uh, in Britain is now at around 600,000 people. Uh, active membership is just under 200,000. That's people who've used it in the last year. Of course, that starts to get us into the COVID effects because those are up-to-date figures. So, but, you know, of course, COVID's had a disruptive effect on that. Um, how, how does that compare, Richard, though? So if it was 200K last year, active members... Is that down on the previous year or is that still a bit of an increase at least? Proportionally, yes, but there's a, there's a complicating factor, isn't there, always, uh, in that increasingly car clubs have moved to a uh, non-paid membership model. So if we wind the history back five years, then you had to pay your, let's say, £70 to, to join for the year and then you paid on the basis of, of use. Um, of course, flipping the, the cost base around from private car ownership, which is partly why it's a powerful tool to cut people's mileage, which we find again and again. Um, uh, but quite a lot of the big schemes have moved to a free membership model, which then, of course, boosts the total membership number. So this is why we are now talking about total and active to try and give us a clearer picture as we can. Um, and bike share also, you know, as, as I, I know we're here to talk about Top Gear and car share, but, uh, you know, it's also been uh, doing well. And I think if you look at the e-scooter trial responses, the per day ride rate in those schemes and so on, it's actually all looking you know, pretty healthy. This is something people like and they use and is growing in scale and reaching critical mass but it's really a sort of first base kind of critical mass in a baseball analogy you know this is the bad news we're still in this world where it is uh, it is marginal I know exactly what Ali Clever means in that, that quote from Greg there um, and we have yet to see any of the really big piece policy moves that we could see both in a more general decarbonisation sense particularly about private motoring but also in a more specific sense of what could share transport do more of uh, if it had a more supportive environment. We're working on those. Uh, it's not a uniform picture. Some parts of, the, of Britain are doing better than others on this. Um, Scotland in particular has been marching on very well in the last 18 months, two years. Um, Wales has suddenly, dare I say, woken up to this. Its transport strategy just published really has quite a lot of shared transport positive mm -hmm. content specifics in it, which is really welcome to see, something we, we pushed on. Um, the current guidance on electric vehicle charging, which currently excludes shared vehicles, mind-blowingly, uh, is something we're trying to work with the Office of Zero Emission Vehicles to revise. So there's lots of sort of hopeful lines in the fire, and I'd say COVID shaken up the, the policy environment for shared transport in rather a good way, um, because I think when you have a shake-up, if you're on the margins, it's probably more likely to benefit you than if you were a kind of central incumbent. Uh, so there's lots of things that are moving quicker and in a more positive direction. But if you look across to, uh, say, Germany in particular, the Netherlands, lots of you know, Belgium, we're a long way back in terms of per head of population use, availability, promotion, incentivization, provision, other factors like mobility hubs where things, you know, sustainable means can be gathered together as partly as a way to suppress private car parking provision and so on. Long, just, long way to go. We, we do. And just before I come to Greg, and I, and I don't mean this to sound pessimistic, but I just want to ask um, in this way, when we talk about technical innovations, often we talk about um, the the, the uh, prospect, the the dire prospect of, of of things not working out, falling into this sort of valley of death. So, you talked about 
sort of mar- being on the still on the margins and and you know that perhaps the critical mass still isn't there is there any danger that it's still not at a level yet here where um it, it, it's here to stay is there any danger that it it this could be a um a disappearing trend no i it's here to stay you might say I would say this, wouldn't I? No, I don't think there's an existential threat here. Um, I, although I would caveat that slightly in the sense of the impacts of COVID on shared transport have been varied depending on what kind of shared transport we're talking about. So car club use as a, as a generalisation has held up. Uh, of course, it's been a roller coaster ride, but public transport's been much less available, of course, and shared transport has benefited from that bike share in particular has benefited from that um uh, in certain places it's on an even picture so not too much to worry on that side of that but the lifting type of shared transport um has been devastated by covid of course uh, and it's still something that you know it's an activity that is currently not allowed so that's a very different picture so i think for lift sharing there's a bit of a different point here of how do we get that back up as it will be coming back up from zero. Other forms of shared, that's not the case. I don't think we're at that existential threat level. I think the risk is much more just inaction and, and that, yes, growth continues, but it continues rather despite the ecosystem than despite because of it. Okay. And therefore, we just don't get the level of impact that we could get. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we're definitely going to come to, to some of what, about what that ecosystem needs to be. But, but Greg, do you want to comment as well on the on the trajectory that we were on and that, that, that we're now on. And um, can I just ask you, because it's occurred to me as, as Richard's been talking, that we haven't actually defined what we mean by shared transport in this webinar so far. Um, can I just ask you to sort of give a give an overview of, of what we're including on, under that banner? Yeah, that's a really um, good point. I, I mean, I think it's sharing of uh, access to assets and sharing um, of those assets in use. So the latter would be the the kind of lift sharing um, or um, perhaps more of the kind of bespoke demand responsive transport type arrangements, whereas uh, sharing of the assets is access to bike share, e-scooter, shared e-scooters and uh, car club type type vehicles and i think um i mean richard's always kind of, he's already pointed to this um those markets are quite they actually serve really different purposes and and um covid's had a different impact so there is a risk of kind of um uh, seeing kind of covid is is bad for the shared transport economy well it, it's it's definitely not um uh, an even picture and one thing we said in the commission's report was we should look at promising use cases and um i mean richard's right like um we've lost um a lot of employment trips and people have been advised not to share vehicles and so on um so you could see that as all negative but actually in the survey work that we've done it's done quite a lot of sorting of those people who who are driving and reliant on cars and those people who've got more flexibility in terms of what they can work. And that's really important for the long term. So I think our survey, and you you correct me because you've been crunching the numbers lately, 44% of people carried on driving to work um, pretty much every day during, uh, during lockdown. They tended to be the lower income people, more likely to live on the edge of town with poor 
public transport accessibility. So for them, services like Tandem, where the workplace or the groups of workplaces are collectively delivering a solution, that points to a really strong opportunity to me, or, or that's where they, they you know, should be targeting their market. And then we've got 50% of people who are working from home a lot more uh, or, or exclusively. And Transport Focus put out a report uh, in the last week which said that um, whereas two-thirds of rail commuters used to do it four or five days a week, they think that's going to be as low as 20, 21% uh, when, when we start going um, back to work more. And if the same sorts of numbers potentially hold true for car commuting, you, you know, it's not all or nothing, but it's that in-between ground that's really important, then the dynamics of owning a car, which is not in use every day, or buying a season ticket, which is not going to get used very much, change. And I think that creates some spaces where shared mobility could become significantly more interesting. So, um, yeah, it is a mixed picture. Yeah. Yeah. And can I, can I just uh, ask you, just before we, we move on to, to really looking at the positive, I just want to sort of iron out any wiggles in this. I mean, before COVID, we were, as a general trend, looking across um, car use, at least, we were seeing, on average, car occupancy fall. So, what, I mean, why do you think that was happening. What what was going on in our transport and car market to mean that we're we're using even less cars even less intensely um, as a as we as we've gone on over over the decade? Because unless we sort of understand that and that sort of trend towards the individualization of, of the car, um, then we you know we, we need to understand it in order to address it. Yeah, so um, I think the average car occupancy is 1.55 before the pandemic, and it's it's fallen, but it's fallen, I would say, relatively slowly over like a, a two decades. Um, and I think part of that will be the changing structure of who owns cars. So um, we're still in that 20-year period, moving into one where uh, more of the vehicle fleet, relatively speaking, is is owned by uh, older people Mm -hmm. so they're they're by definition living in smaller family units and therefore more likely to be making single occupancy car-based trips so that could be a factor uh that's playing into it um you know when we look at the trends from the other direction lower driving license uptake um, younger people not uh coming into the car market quite as strongly as they had done previously that they would all, I guess, have been more likely to have been in lower, lower car occupancy. Um, so there's trends moving moving in both ways. So I think it's actually quite hard to kind of nail down exactly what's going on with um, the the car occupancy figures. But what I would say is there's really not an awful lot of good data on car occupancy. Yeah, it's like we've just not bothered with it. We've been we've been totally focused on on how to optimize the movements of bits of tin, not the movements mm-hmm. of the people in in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. Okay, let, let's just um, cast our eye elsewhere then. And, and Richard, I'll, I'll start with you, just ask you about uh, where, where you think it has gone right and is going right, whether that that may be here in, in you mentioned Wales, Scotland, um, but, but elsewhere, um, where are there some success stories and, and, and what are the ingredients that have, have led to the success? 
Yes, thanks. Just um, just on the last bit to lob in a couple of thoughts there, because it might stimulate sort of debate later. I think the, um, it, you know, we just also got a lot of cars we've got to recognise, haven't we? Uh, more than we've ever had before, 38.8 million of them. Um, and I was looking at the figures the other day. I mean, it was the 1990 figure was 27 million. So it's an extra 11, 12 million of the things knocking about. Mm. And, um, you, you know, if um, anyone's uh, following John Sorove of Jacobs on LinkedIn and so on, he's endlessly posting up fascinating transport data. And one of his graphs last week was the real terms cost of everything over the last, I think, 25 years. And of course, you know, it shows motoring going wrong while rail <laughs> does that and bus does that. Yep. Roughly speaking. So, um, you know, we shouldn't be sort of terribly surprised, sadly, about this sort of thing, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, but then we stack it against government's declaration on uh, on 78% cut on 1990 levels on greenhouse gases by 2035, which brings things forward and so on. So there are, you know, there, there are things to tilt up and be positive about here. Gillian, sorry, will you repeat your question? We're roughly breaking Yeah, off. so just let's think, let's look to where there's been good outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, so a bit of a composite answer, I think. It's a bit like the, um, you know, in heaven, the Italians do the cooking, the Germans do the organising, whatever. So, you know, I think on um, if you want to look at, for example, uh, mobility as a service in action, that, that concept, where's that been translated? I would say Berlin is the, is the lead there. There you have the, the one app to rule them all, so you don't have the... The, the intra-app competition going on, inter-app contribution going on, and the confusion for users, therefore, there's just one. Um, but it's it's once you're in that, it's, it's plural. So it's not just a public transport app, which is where a lot of it is still stuck uh, in, the, in the UK and elsewhere. Uh, it is finding a way to work with the private sector providers also and curate that and present that to people in a fairly coherent set of options. And it includes cars, which I think is also where this falls down. It just tries to ignore cars or at best it has taxi in there. But generally speaking, my understanding is that, that you know, in places like, like Switzerland and Germany, where for, for car clubs at least, uh, the success has been... Uh, around, you know, or the, or the growth has been around uh, for for quite some time. That partnership, even if not with, with you know the, the more up to date sort of apps and integration in that way, but that partnership be- between the car clubs and, and public transport operations has actually been quite a key ingredient to success. Yes, um, and also being many, I would say. So if you look at Munich and what they've done with taking out private car parking provision and giving people credits and incentives to use the shared car uh, fleets. That's another version of the internet. If you look at Bremen and what they've done on mobility hubs as a way of gathering sustainable options together, also while taking out private car parking. Um, I'd say on the sort of micro-mobility side of it, Tel Aviv and the Israeli cities stand out for the sheer speed with which they've gone in and put parking zones and then corrected them if they turn out to be in the wrong place and that sort of fail fast to succeed model something we could really learn from um i think u.s cities actually somewhat surprisingly perhaps some of them really stolen a march on this and perhaps now with a new administration there federally we'll see some some catch up at federal level um but they've really you know marched on with uh, mobility hubs with changing parking criteria with gathering options together uh, and i think particularly the social inclusion side of things is something the us is much stronger on 
than, than even actually continental Europe and certainly than the UK. So, you know, well-designed programs that spread coverage into areas where the market won't want to go, but the market has to go there because that's the only way it's going to get the license to operate in the bits that it does want to go to. Those sorts of trade-offs, uh, much more action uh, on that and on closing around funding loops to provide provision in those areas cross-subsidized in, in various ways by the more lucrative areas. So it's it's a hodgepodge of different, you know, bright spots around the world. Well, one of the things I haven't ever un- uh, understood is that for conventional public transport, the, it's, the, the operators know their market is often in neighbourhoods where car ownership is lower and, you know, where, you know, we might be talking about socially excluded people and, and, need, and, and you know, that's their sort of target market. Why has that not been a target market for car clubs? It, you know, instead they seem to have uh, been built up in rel- relatively wealthy areas. Yes, with with maybe parking pressure and lower car ownership, but nevertheless the demographic has been very very different. And is that is that really because these are the people that use it, or just because that's that's the the sort of received wisdom rather than um, than anything else? Uh, a couple of points here. So in that comparison, it's a, it's a fascinating question. First point, I think, has got to be subsidy. So we've got to recognise that the public transport operators in those spaces and so on have a large amount of subsidy as a generalisation uh, to be operating in those areas. Um, and uh, I think... Um, very worrying sort of big picture thing here is what happens to public transport economics and finances because we know that that impacts on shared transport and all of that inter-impacts on decarbonisation and how do we get there but anyway you know there's no subsidy essentially for shared transport so it's will it make a commercial return or not is the test Uh, and there's been a lot of experience over the years where going into um, areas on lower incomes doesn't make that return, which is why operators have tried things and then retracted. But I think this is a classic of where uh, the policy environment can really move those viability milestones. You could do it through subsidy, of course. You know that's the equivalent of marching onto the pitch and grabbing the goalposts and running off in a different direction with them. But there are also subtler things that could be done. You know, so where's the communications? package that goes around to everybody living in that area to really promote and keep on promoting the shared transport options where's the incentives package that could go alongside that the first few uses are free whatever it may be how do you gather these things together at the community facilities the places where people are going anyway rather than just begrudgingly allowed to have one space that's tucked away around the back of nowhere that no one can find and is more likely to be vandalised. You know, there's a whole set of factors there um, and really it'd be, you know, great to see authorities and operators able to work together on here's our problem, here's our test case. How do we go about tackling that? What inroads could we make here? How do we work with maybe greater public transport provision going into an area alongside parking restraint, perhaps, for example? That's great. Okay, we'll come back to to some of that because there's some questions definitely coming through about rural areas, mobility hubs um, uh, and so on. So we'll we'll come back to that. But just give Greg a chance to to talk about sort of his notions of of success where where he thinks it has happened and and the ingredients for that. 
Actually, um, I'm going to defer to Richard on on this one. I thought he gave he, he used some of the examples that I would have given of, of places that are that are doing well. Um, I say there's no there's no one place that does everything. Um, no, and, the only thing. Yeah, go on. Um, and I think we have to, you know, really des design it for our own context and and mm -hmm. not obsess too much about what's what's happening elsewhere. I mean, pick pick those ideas up, but. The UK market and environment is is quite distinct, so so are the incentives around car ownership and and so on. So, what works here is is going to I think be a little bit different. And we, I think we have to, to think as well. Though you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, earlier about different use cases, it's easy to sort of think about the private private car ownership or hopefully shared ownership. Uh, models, but we are talking about fleet vehicles as well, and and sharing in that context. We and we're talking, as you mentioned earlier, Richard, not just about cars, but about um, uh, bikes and and e-bikes, e-scooters, and so on. So each of these things has, as you're saying, different um, different contexts where they work uh, and different ways in which they they need to be supported. Or, or not um so yeah it's it's actually when you get into this this is a it's actually a huge topic area isn't it it's got um a, a lot that we need we could be we could be doing and thinking about so let's just um talk about some specific policy mechanisms you've alluded to to some of them um but um what is it that is really missing from policy you know if we can sort of be quite sort of almost list list some of the things that absolutely need to happen to 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 galvanize and accelerate these trends Richard start with you again okay um well implement all the recommendations in the credit report would be a cracking start uh, so I won't I won't traipse through those but uh, Greg's already popped the link in the in the chat and um, I, I certainly say to everyone that is well worth a read that set of recommendations and it gives you really quite a good pen portrait of what this different world might look like which is not 180 degree different from where we are now but it is significantly different. Um, some specifics we've been um, pushing on um, there's a job, I think, for here for central government to think about what it's doing. Um, and that is a wide ranging job, you know, so it strays off into the, some thorny areas. Tax is an obvious one. Um, the tax system uh, with regards to motoring, um, I mean, ultimately will have to be reformed because of the shrinking amount of revenue that will come through on the existing basis. We all know that. But you know, to put a shared transport spin on it, um, there is no consideration of shared transport in the taxation system currently. So I mean that both in the sense of uh, everything is geared through either a public transport lens or a you own the transport asset lens. And actually, of course, shared is neither of those. So it falls down the cracks there. There are no specific incentives towards it of any kind um, uh, there. Um, uh, and there's also then uh, various packages of things which don't touch shared simply because shared hasn't been thought of when the package is designed uh, so then you know this takes us into 
for individuals, but also the fleet side of things. You know, mm. so how does it stack up fiscally for employers of all kinds? And you just think of big employers right across public and private sector. So that's one aspect of what really should be a whole package approach to employers. Uh, I think, for example, looking to measure them on scope three emissions, so that mm. all transport to, from, and for work is counted in emissions measurement. Uh, there should be something there. Bespoke, I think, also for the NHS, given its sheer size and the percentage of road journeys which are for the NHS in one way, shape or form, which is significant in its own right. Largest single employer in Europe, after all. Uh, there's absolutely nothing there. and We're having lots of conversations, very typical conversations the UK has where we are uh, finding sort of people who are interested in our space or, or getting to them and then trying to work with them to deliver some bottom-up change fundamentally. But it is again changed despite the system rather than because of it. So instead, you know, let's change the system to uh, to empower that sort of change, those sorts of efficiency gains. There's a lot there if you look across the, the pool fleets, you know, so these are the vehicles owned by these big institutions, but also then the grey fleets, so the, the allowances money paid for people's use of their own cars but while traveling for work purposes so there's a whole sort of work package there there's a tax package there uh, in terms of just transport policy and all that dft itself can control there's actually a lot to tilt at i, I touched on ozf and ev charging uh, aspects um, there's also the incentives on organizations like highways england network rail some of this is, is fleshed out in the credit report um, but currently these organizations have no incentive to prioritise around decarbonisation, no incentive to look at vehicle occupancy, uh, no incentive to provide more sustainable modes, no incentive to work collaboratively with entities in their local areas, um, to, to plan their network to be the, the leanest, most efficient possible. Um, uh, things are on the move a bit here. Network Rail's got a, a parking and design uh, manual out for bids at the moment, which features mobility hubs, for example, that we've been talking to them about quite a lot. So Just, things are moving a bit, but again, from bottom up, why can't we have the government say to Network Rail, this is now part of your, your job is to worry about how people get to and from the station, not just the on the train, on the track bit. And yeah, I could go on. I'm, I'm sure you could. I'm going to pick up just one question in the chat because um, I noticed it. And, and also it's a question that I have as well. You've mentioned mobility hubs now a couple of times. What are they? Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the, the question from Roger Geffen is, I'm familiar with Como's UK's graphic of, of a hypothetical mobility hub, but I still don't have a clear mental picture of what a mobility hub would look like or how it would work in practice. And I, I found this as well. You know, the, the Welsh transport strategy has concerted, you know, defined uh, mobility hubs as, as, as a, net, a network of mobility hubs as something that it wants to uh, implement. Um, but again, without any real sense of what that is. So are these um, are these hubs different, again, according to where they are? You mentioned network rail, but there's rural areas where they're being talked about. Are they, you know, are they actually quite a, a various sort of set of, of types of physical um, entity or, you know, what are they? <laughs> yeah, well, in a nutshell, what we mean by it is somewhere where public transport optional options, shared transport optional options, active travel optional options come together. So this is in some designed way that is obvious to the user. They think, I am at a hub here. There's a collection of things. It's not, therefore, some things which are 
nearly in the same place, but not really. Um, so that you know, if something is 400 meters away with no signage, um, that we're not we're not saying that's a hub. Um, so it's something gathered together with a bit of public realm improvement. They, it's a very heterogeneous concept. It's, it's really flexible. So you can be talking here about um, an augmented bus stop, uh, in effect. Uh, you know, so we have the bus stop. We have good walking route to it. We have uh, one shared car parking bay. We have some private cycle parking. We have a sign that identifies as the hub. I and mean, that's typical of lots of the Bremen mini hubs, uh, which they have a very large network, many hundreds of them now. Or we can be right up to the other end of the scale. We could be huge coach interchanges that we see in the Netherlands uh, or very interesting end of uh, S-Bahn or U-Bahn uh, networks in Germany that then have shared car pickup drop-off. Uh, and taxi uh, provision uh, to get people into the rail network along with cycling and so on. So it's, it's really flexible. The sort of danger of that, I think, is then that we get lots of things, get the word hub stuck on them without a clear definition as to well, what do we mean here and what are we trying to achieve? So we've tried to work with that. We have an accreditation uh, standard uh, for hubs, bronze, silver and gold, right. which goes across Keep six typologies that we've identified so these are both different sizes but also different locations so trying to account for urban suburban peri-urban rural um uh, that's you know not pretending that's the last word on the topic but it's something that we hope is helpful to people in their thinking and gives them uh, a standard that they can uh, achieve and say they've achieved and prove they've achieved. Um, we're also doing some work on the business models behind these, which finds a very lively area. Well, who owns it and who funds it and what's the capital revenue mix and am I going to be left with the white elephant on my hands yeah. in five years' time? So we're, we're doing something on that too. So I'm, we're trying to strike a balance, as I think lots of other sort of players in this space are. So Keith posted in the chat about the uh, the one extant hub that we have in the UK so far, which is the North Greenwich one in London. Um, you know, we're trying to strike a balance between being flexible and inclusive and, uh, and adaptable in the future, but having something that's high quality and clear and is, you know, is genuinely delivering on these goals uh, and isn't lipstick on a pig or isn't just not good enough to really attract people to use it. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Greg, over to you on, on what you would say are the real key policy recommendations. You can, you know, you can read off the, the creds report if, if you want to or, or, or prioritise them. Perhaps you've come to other views since, since we published. Um, well, I guess, the, I mean, Richard touched on cost. I'd be interested to know what you think about this, Gillian. But for me, the cost drivers seem to be going the other way with EVs because you've got a really significant upfront cost and then a lower per mile cost. And um, so, um, you know, we have got to electrify, but um, that that is that to me is going to be a market dampener for, for the, sharing in certain certain demographics. The upfront, the fact that EVs are a greater upfront cost is interesting though, isn't it? In, in the sense that that is one one of there's a main barrier to uptake of vehicles and could play into the car sharing except of course most people lease their vehicles and pay pay for their their vehicle monthly so an upfront cost is kind of completely diluted including upfront vehicle excise duty which is wrapped into those things so so those you know this is a real uh that a change I think that has happened in the car market recently to to facilitate ownership rather than than sharing. Yeah, um, and yeah. Uh, you know we continue to channel 
quite a lot of public subsidy into individual ownership models. So again, well, is is policy what you spend your money on rather than what you talk about? If it is, then I think we've still very much got an individual ownership mindset. Um, so I think um, my focus is on like um, things that, that we could do, things that are really in the, the hands of government. And I still think that um, not giving Highways England a mandate to increase uh, vehicle occupancy on its network is ridiculous because we're spending money potentially on on widening and increasing the inefficient use of, a, of of the network asset. So, um, not that I generally think in the next decade we've got any headspace to be widening anyway. But um, you know, let's make more intensive use of the asset in the next decade and see what we see what we could achieve, and that may change our future investment portfolio. Um, I mean, R- Richard touched on scope three emissions i think um we don't have to necessarily regulate for for commute emissions to be part of um businesses portfolios i think a lot of businesses are going there anyway through their their kind of climate change commitments um so it's an open door with big companies to work with them on um sharing applications and on uh, access to cleaner shared fleets um there's been some really interesting um, discussions about innovations. I know um, I've um, been in, in touch with Enterprise about some of the ideas they've had on, um, you know, getting people to to share um, the vehicle uh, domestically for lift share trips to work. The vehicle's then available in a pool when it's at work, and when it's back at home, it's a it's a car club vehicle, not an individual asset mm-hmm. and you know so we we could get a lot more um uh, sharing through through thinking collectively about the homework joining up rather than it all being workplace schemes or all being home-based schemes but actually thinking about people's whole life you know utilization of vehicles and access mm-hmm. and i think that opens up opportunities in areas where car club vehicles are not viable uh in in the model of just putting stuff out on the street but they become viable as a part of a, a community asset. So I think that there are some in, interesting things uh, there. And then finally, parking policy, really difficult. Local authorities are going to be under right under the, the cosh for, for money. Um, but that just in, uh, reduces the incentives to get rid of of parking spaces you know um if we want more shared mobility we want people to be driving less we need fewer cars in order to meet our climate commitments actually we need less parking and we've mm-hmm. got to make we've got to step away from that at some point so um you know i don't know quite what the right scheme for that is but we've somehow got to wean local authorities off that and provide some other way of recycling benefits from shared mobility into the the local authority system uh, and find that kind of balancing act Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to thank you for that. I'm go- I'm going to move on to um, question, some of the questions that are coming through, which will um, carry on sort of this element of, of the discussion. Really, there's a couple of questions which are related to um, getting electric cars into the shared fleets. Um, I mean, so as a general question, you know, what what are the prospects for that? What are the barriers for that? specifically also and I was interested in this um can you Richard just expand on what you said at the very beginning I think it was about the um the the recent um OZEV policy uh excluding car clubs what 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 did, did that mean so any anything sort of related to to 
using using car clubs to pull through electrification, um, but also um, the prospects for for sh those being good for the business model case. Yes, thanks. So there's um, you know there's something really important here. Um, I think there is a danger just with EVs generally. Following on from what Greg was saying, you know, there is there's a real danger here with these things that the uh, the bigger cost um, is on the acquisition side, as you rightly said, Gillian. That's then smeared across monthly payments, which rather makes it dissolve. And I think that's possibly part of the answer to our previous question about why we've got so many cars, etc. You know, I don't think that's been a helpful trend in terms of decarbonisation. Um, but then we've also got the very low use cost and the sort of halo polishing aspect uh, of, of privately owned EVs, which is still very strong um, with you know government subsidies to purchase with those green number plates, etc. Really, we need to be aiming at, uh, of course, need to be privately owned EVs and other tailpipe free vehicles, but we should really be aiming for a big chunk of this to be shared use in this electric future. So um, some good news and some bad news here <laughs> again. So the percentage of car club fleet, which is electric, is far ahead of the general fleet. It's still under 1% of, of overall cars in Britain. But in the car club fleet, we're, we're going up about 10% now and in some places higher. That's an average figure. Um, people seek these out. So in our latest research, which we haven't published yet, uh, but we're at nearly half of users who've actually used an electric car club car in the last year. So I find this really interesting because uh, what we're also finding congruent with other years is that people don't on average use car clubs that much when they're part of them. So this sort of demon of, ah, oh, but this is going to be the kind of methadone uh, to the heroin, you know, this is just going to habituate people to car use and then they're going to go and buy their own car. I struggle to reconcile that with what we see again and again, which is people use them for specific use cases and not that much. So the most ticked option is one to five times a year. So given they're not using these things so many times, it's interesting that so many have gone and used the electric ones. So far beyond proportion, they make up of the overall fleet. So basically people must be seeking these out to some extent and seeing what they're like. So car clubs therefore being a really good introducer to, uh, to EVs, and people really like them. So the satisfaction ratings are very, very high, although they're much lower with the charging infrastructure. But in terms of the actual EVs themselves, you know, this is a way for them to try them, and it turns out they like them. It's also, of course, a way to get EVs out to people, therefore, far ahead of what you can get through just private model rollout. Um, the OZIF guidance point is that at the moment, uh, guidance from OZIF, uh, OZIF sorry, guidance isn't quite the right word, the, the rules around funding uh, for charge points explicitly excludes uh, car clubs because it excludes commercial fleets. So car clubs ending up falling into, if you like, that category. Um, and hopefully there's a job of work uh, that we're trying to do here to, to unpick that uh, and work out how we can get some uh, dedicated chargers, some preferential access we're not calling for all charge points should be given over to car clubs and none for privately owned cars um there'll, there'll need to be a balance uh, but at the moment through that and through uh, the way state aid rules have been applied also uh, through a number of factors it, it's ended up with there being very very little ev charge point infrastructure that's dedicated to car sharing there's the odd bit and bob but but not much Do, does it require um so there's the, the, the hard infrastructure side of it. Does it require 
different types of charger? Does it require different types of payment, different payment systems? I mean, what, what is it that, that it, it needs that's different? It, I mean, yes, all of the above. It, once you're through the can fleets get reliable access to it in a way that works for their um, business models that doesn't drive up costs and therefore reduce provision, reduce liability and so on. Then you're into the same set of issues, basically, that every consumer of EV charge points has got. So interoperability, simplicity of payment, not having a multiplicity of different apps and payment systems to navigate and you know making all that as, as simple, transparent, reliable as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, Greg, I'm just going to come to you and, and ask about... Um, the real prospects here. Uh, you've you've recently done some work uh, analysing enterprise uh, car club data um, and and looking at the scope, the the scale, the, the sort of the scale of the emissions savings that that could take place. I mean, what what's the real contribution uh, that that car clubs could or let's let's talk about sharing. We should we should broaden this out. That sharing could make um, in the in the time that we have available. Um. Well, um, I'll flip it back maybe a little bit. Some of the work that that uh, you and colleagues presented to the commission, which was, you know, a third of cars aren't moving in a given day. Uh, the maximum amount of the the whole vehicle fleet that's on the move at any point during a week is fourteen percent, which was at I don't know eight o'clock on a Tuesday morning or whatever. So um, you know the, the, there's huge scope for that in, in just in a purely operational sense, right? But obviously you've got the kind of social uh, norms, the coordination of people's journey patterns, and so on. Um, but you know, if you look at what goes on in some of the better companies that have managed to do this, you know, they get huge carbon savings and huge parking savings. And I'll let um, I'll let the companies that are on the the the, the chat kind of uh, post the, the the best results that they've they've managed to achieve. But you know, that that's all through um, you know working as a community around a shared problem. Um, you know, and 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 delivering a different kind of social outcome. So, I don't know what the the limit on it is, but it's certainly not. Um, my concern is we approach the limit on it, or the committee on climate change, or the department approaches the limit on on the basis of of looking at what we've what's been achieved with policies to date. Well, not as much as it could have done because they haven't really imagined what could be created. And if that's the scale of our imagination, we'll we'll never feel that we could push push beyond no but i think to, I, I do worry that the the conversation still stays at the theoretical level a lot that yes we we do um understand the the gross inefficiency that is built up it built into our transport system um uh, the 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 amount of idle tin boxes that, that are left uh, sitting there for the majority of the time, the sunk costs in, in that system, etc. So we can talk about things theoretically, but the 
the main nub of the problem from the point of view of, of accelerating um, our achievement of whether it's decarbonisation or other environmental and, and social goals of really reducing the amount of vehicles that are out there. Ultimately, the, the biggest issue is around um, the, in, the desire for indivi that individuals have to own their own cars. And beyond, beyond restructuring the costs, how quickly can we really shift the norms toward the idea that ownership is not um, not the, the, the desire, desirable thing that it's held to be? Um, well, I think for some, ownership is going to continue to be a desirable thing. And I think we, we do need to plan that into our kind of transport futures the idea that everything is going to be shared is you know that's just absolutism in the in in the other direction um but yeah how quickly could we go i mean some parts of the country we looked at um local government is like almost a third of employment and then if you add on health you know and, and other sectors i mean that's not true everywhere but then you know you've also got other big companies that are, are keen to do things differently actually the the scale of the opportunity to leverage behavior change through you know through beyond a, an appeal to the individual is is actually still quite large i know i'm back in in the theoretical but in some senses i'm not because we've been there with with commuter travel planning to some degree um, we've got some new tools we've got some new technologies can we put together compelling offers that go beyond just your trip to work to your kind of whole life I, you know i don't know we, we seem to be happy to imagine autonomous vehicles and, and and to take that as a given thing that will happen you know like we, we you know that's still a theoretical but we're we, you know that's very much being um you know talked about yeah. still, still well below the niche of sharing so why can't we be more ambitious in in this space no i i, I totally agree um richard is there any evidence on um this idea that where where there are these same mobility if whether it might be through a mobility hub or not but where there are where there's a good provision of um a variety of options and that might be a variety of different types of car within one car club or across a number of car clubs if you if you're in an area and have got multiple options is there any um evidence to suggest that there's a there's a there's a growing status around the idea that well isn't this fantastic you know I've got access to a van one day and an EV another day and a e-bike another day um, you know is that is there something that we can at least see is is um, becoming aspirational to to have access to that kind of flexibility. So that's definitely the reality that people report to us. Um, and it's something I want us to uh, bring more voice to is the individual user experience and positivity, because the positivity is overwhelming when we do our research. Um, and we, I think, certainly as Como, but others, you know, could do with more of surfacing that. Uh, and in particular, I think getting through to politicians and those around them, but this is stuff people broadly like very much and want to use, do use when they realise it's there and it works for them. Um, whereas actually when you think of lots of the measures that you end up talking about in relation to decarbonisation, 
uh, you know, from politicians' point of view, uh, lots of them start looking pretty unappetizing pretty quickly. Um, so there absolutely is something about that. We have lots of, you know, really sort of heartwarming case study quotes about the stuff that it enables people to do. I'm taking your question sort of, is it mainstream aspirational? You know, is it in our sort of national dialogue in some way to, to, this is aspirational? I'd say on the whole, no, I don't think we are there yet. Uh, I, I think... Um, we have a sort of rather tired legacy aspiration around private car ownership, which is nothing like as strong as it used to be, but it's still there, still quite powerful. Uh, public transport use has become more aspirational in some senses, some places you've got the rail use graph pre-COVID and so on. We haven't got so much on the, on the, the shared side of things. Um, I think though this is, you know, this is where this next couple of years even probably in terms of the narrative from particularly central government matters enormously um, and building on some of the questions in the chat you know there's there's a, there's a missing space here basically where they talk about the need to improve occupancy the need to share this stuff more this is not part of uh, of the the narrative output from from central government it is increasingly becoming part of it from next level down you know Scottish government is starting to get some of this it's got a kilometrage reduction target for example and you know starting to see some of these things come in but it's not mainstream there so I think it could really do with that because that would probably then unlock quite a lot more of this this positivity and people realizing oh actually stuff it does work yes this this is good I can fit my life around this yeah I think you're right and there's you know there's questions about you know is 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 there any sign of the Department for Transport developing a shared mobility strategy um, you've mentioned Scotland and their their car kilometre reduction target, but they don't mention ownership of vehicles. The the Climate Change Committee's recent sixth budget report finally suggests that it's going to be necessary to reduce car use, but actually maintains um, in its models quite a large uh, projected growth in the size of the fleet. So essentially, it is in a in a uh, what's supposed to be a flagship climate policy suggesting that it's okay to own more in, uh, of these um, vehicles with horrendous embedded emissions and use them less. So, that you know, there is just no no narrative um, around That's right. There's, there's not much. Um, yeah. CCC in the sixth budget, at least it talks about car clubs in there. So we've sort of made a bit of progress. It does, um, yeah. As yeah. you absolutely rightly say, long way to go. And it is, they're a classic of it is not yet mainstream in their thinking. We're, we're yeah. engaged with them and, and trying to shift that. The Welsh transport strategy was an interesting one. To my knowledge, that was the first where it tied uh, a goal of reducing individual car ownership, sadly, without numbers and specifics on it yet, but it is an overall strategy. It, yeah. And it ties that explicitly into shared options, it, all in the one sentence. So these few little glimmers, but yeah, these, these are little sort of initial green shoots in the desert, if you like, aren't they, <laughs> of where we should really yeah. be looking yeah. at a, a garden. Yeah. And Gregor, I've got give you one minute for the for the last word just before I hand over to Becky for final final uh, word. Um, well, I think it's um, it's been a really interesting discussion, Gillian. Um, I mean, I think that there are lots and lots of different points that we could move on to advance shared mobility, but yeah, I, it worries me that that who's responsible for that and we've got so many good innovators and innovative companies 
um, you know, we've got Como UK. I think we've got councils with a groundswell of like wanting to do this. It just feels like we're not like lighting the touch paper mm-hmm. and, and, and we could do. But, you know, I'm afraid in the beginning there was income um, following income was car ownership. That's the Department for Transport's approach to modelling future travel demand. Unless we engage with the fact that actually we should be open to a shrinking fleet rather than a growing fleet, and that doesn't mean that we, you know, we're all sat at home all the time. You know, I, I, it just needs a massive mind mm-hmm. mind shift. Um, mm-hmm. It does. Know. It does. And that that reminds me of, of a great question that I could have asked, which is about job creation, because everything at the moment to me seems to be um, needing to be weighed up against uh, against uh, job losses and, and, and creation um, rather than carbon. So thank you very much, both of you. Really enjoyed it. Could have gone on for, for another hour or two, I'm sure. And thanks to everybody for great questions that I didn't get to, but maybe um, Richard and, and Greg can, can answer um, in other ways. So thanks. Thanks, Gillian, Greg, Richard. Fascinating conversation. So many interesting points. Um, a couple of things that stood out to me. That's that 44% of people carried on driving to work through the lockdown and that they tended to be lower income. There's huge opportunities there for workplaces to target that market and maybe expand shared mobility into some different demographics. And for the 50% who are working from home, more, there's opportunities there too to offer an alternative to the idle tin box, as you described it, Gillian. <laughs> Uh, also the need to better understand car occupancy and that we've been focused far too much on optimising the movements of vehicles rather than people and the idea that we should see that ambition that's applied to autonomous vehicle policy uh, applied to shared mobility which is much more achievable and very much in keeping with the green recovery and finally just to give a plug to the report that Greg mentioned a few times the shared mobility where now where next report in case you didn't get the message that it's well worth the read the link is in the chat I hope you'll be able to join us again for Urban Transport Next 6, where we'll be talking to TransLink Group CEO Chris Conway about Northern Ireland's public transport transformation up to Thursday the 3rd of June at 12pm. In the meantime, thanks again to our fabulous panel and to everyone who took part live or watch later. Thank you and goodbye.